Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 176, The Henchmen Under Khrushchev and Stalin, Part 1. Last time, I covered the controversial figure of Trofim Lysenko. This week, I will cover the two Soviet leaders who allowed him to spread his pseudo-scientific malarkey. You may be wondering why I'm merging the two leaders. Well, this is going to be a different podcast, as I'm not going to go into much depth on either Khrushchev or Stalin, as I already did that quite a while back. As the podcast title suggests, I'm going to cover the relationship of the henchmen to their leaders, especially when serving under Stalin. The men I will look into will be Lavrenti Beria, Nikolai Bulganin, Lazar Kaganovich, Georgi Malenkov, Anastas Mikoyan, Vyacheslav Molotov, Mikhail Suzlov, Clement Voroshilov, and Andrei Zhdanov. At a later date, I may undertake full podcasts on some of these men like Beria, Kaganovich, Molotov, and Voroshilov. These nine men personally signed the death warrants of millions upon millions of people. They had little to no compunction of sending relatives, sons, daughters, wives, to gulags or to the prison hell known as Lubyanka. They also might have all died had not Joseph Stalin passed away from a stroke in 1953. Only Lavrenti Beria was killed of that group. I'm going to cover them in alphabetic order so as no other honor of any kind be given to them, even posthumously. They were cruel, paranoid, and butchers of various degrees. They served during the Great Terror, the Great Patriotic War, known to the West as World War II. These men also lived under constant fear for their own lives, sacrificing others so that they might survive. The first one we'll talk about may be the most depraved of all, Lavrenti Beria. His name is burned in my memory as my mother would spit on the ground and yell, Pistia, any time his name was mentioned. His depravity, especially his serial raping, is legendary. He was born in March of 1899 in Georgia of Mengrillian background to Marta Jekeli and Pavel Beria. His mother was a deeply religious woman and a member of the Georgian Orthodox Church, and his father was a somewhat prosperous landowner. Lavrenti went to technical school in Sukhumi, Azerbaijan, whose curriculum focused mainly on the petroleum industry. In 1917, he joined the Bolsheviks. While there, he also joined the anti-Bolshevist Muzavists, which almost got him executed, except for the intervention of his friend, one Sergei Kirov. Seeing the writing on the wall, he went over firmly to the Bolsheviks, where he joined the Cheka, the Soviet's first secret police in 1920. Beria was a highly efficient and brutal policeman and showed that he had no problem executing anyone at any time and anywhere. By 1926, he became the head of the Georgian OGPU, the new secret police. Here, he was known, noticed by Sergo Ozhikonidze, a friend of Joseph Stalin, who introduced the two. Beria was to become a strong ally of Stalin over the years. He continued to rise in the Communist Party and in the eyes of Stalin. 
1935, he became one of the leader's most trusted henchmen. Beria's relationship to Stalin was of some subservience, but also mutual distrust. Stalin never really trusted Beria. At the Yalta conference in February of 1945, Stalin introduced him to FDR as, quote, our Himmler. But he did entrust him to important projects, such as one to steal the atomic bomb secrets from the United States after World War II. The fact that Beria accomplished this in under five years gives proof to his usefulness and effectiveness. Beria, on the other hand, needed Stalin to forward his career and protect himself. But when Stalin died in 1953, he was supposedly, quote, radiant, regenerated, and glistening with ill-conceived relish. This was obviously a love-hate relationship that only came out in public after the leader's death. Beria came to power after the downfall of his predecessor at the NKVD, Nikolai Yezhov. Yezhov was used as a scapegoat by Stalin after the Great Purge, and Beria was the man to take him down. Yezhov, though, had ordered Beria to be arrested in 1938, when he was the first secretary of the Georgian Communist Party, but Georgian NKVD chief Sergei Gogolids warned Beria, who immediately flew to Moscow to see Stalin personally. He convinced the leader to spare his life. Beria would later have his men shoot Yezhov after a closed-door trial. In 1940, Beria, at the order of Stalin, had his men commit one of the great atrocities of World War II. Lavrenti sent memo number 794-B to the leader, about 22,000 people, many of whom were Polish prisoners of war, but also included members of the intelligentsia, doctors, and priests. After Stalin approved Beria's suggestion on how to handle the situation, the NKVD executed all of the people in what is known to history as the Katyn Forest Massacre. Beria was an efficient and brutal murderer, helping Stalin purge the Red Army before and during the war. He relished the killing and the torture, which really shows his utter cold-heartedness. It is also why he was so totally mistrusted by many of the other henchmen surrounding Stalin. Only Georgi Malenkov allied himself with Beria, although when Khrushchev ambushed him at the meeting of the Presidium on June 26, 1953, even Malenkov abandoned his old friend. When Khrushchev attacked Beria verbally, Lavrenti was to have said, quote, What's going on, Nikita Sergeyevich? Why are you picking fleas in my trousers? Beria was taken completely by surprise by his subsequent arrest, which is kind of ironic as he was the head of internal affairs and state security. Lavrenti Beria was executed on December 23, 1953. While awaiting his death, he was said to have whimpered so loudly and energetically that his executioner, General Pavel Batitsky, stuffed a rag in Beria's mouth before shooting him in the forehead. An appropriate end to a man who enjoyed the murder and torture of others so much. The next henchman we will review is a somewhat lesser-known figure, Nikolai Bulganin. Nikolai Alexandrovich Bulganin was born on June 11, 1895, in Nizhny Novgorod. His father, an accountant, led a quite well-to-do family, which is likely why we have very little knowledge about Bulganin's early life. 
I guess it wouldn't have looked very good had it been known that his relatives were quite the bourgeoisie family. He also started his career as a member of the Cheka, the original Soviet secret police, as an officer in 1918. From there he became a manager of Moscow's electrical equipment factory. In this capacity he earned a reputation as an excellent administrator. By 1931 he was made chairman of the Moscow Soviet. He did such a good job that he caught the eye of Stalin and was on his way up the hierarchy of the Soviet Union. Bulganin was appointed to the position Premier of the Russian Republic, which he served from 1937 to 38, and subsequently became the Chairman of the Soviet Union's State Bank and Deputy Premier of the Soviet Union from 38 to 41. He became a full member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1939. His service during the great patriotic war against Nazi Germany was stellar, although he never served on the front lines. In 1944, he served as Stalin's agent in the high command of the Red Army as deputy commissar for defense. Due to all the purges that went on before and even during the war, Bulganin was as paranoid as the next man. Simon Montefiore writes in his book, Stalin, the Story of the Red Czar, about a time when Moscow was under attack by the Nazis, just miles away from its gates. Stalin had sent Marshal Zhukov to the Western Front headquarters to see what was up. Quote, there he found Molotov, Malinkov, Voroshilov, and Bulganin indulging in an ugly hunt for the scapegoat. There was a constant pattern of looking for the other guy who screwed up because if you were found to make the mistake in Stalin's eyes, whether true or not, your neck was on the line. Bulganin was a master of doing his job well, but not so well that others would feel like he was stepping on their toes or making them look bad. Voroshilov, in an exchange with Konayev about the defense of Moscow, had a supporter, according to Montefiore. Quote, he was supported by Nikolai Bulganin, that blonde and goateed bearded ex-Czechist who had been mayor of Moscow and boss of the state bank. This apparently affable womanizer, who cultivated an aristocratic elegance, but was nicknamed the Plumber by Beria because of his work on the Moscow sewers, was deftly ambitious and suavely ruthless. He wanted Konev shot, perhaps to save his own skin. Over the years, the stress from trying to stay on the good side of Stalin built up. Many of the henchmen became alcoholics, with... Shashurbakov dying of it, and Zhadanov following him a few years later. Bulganin was, quote, practically an alcoholic. Another way Stalin controlled his men was through fueling their hatred for one another. They all lived near each other by plan. Again, turning to Montefiore, quote, The potentates could never meet in private. Danger lurked in friends and friendship, wrote Sergei Khrushchev. An innocent meeting could end tragically. Although Khrushchev, Malenkov, Meklis, Budyani, and others lived on Granovsky Street, they virtually never visited their neighbors. Stalin relished their mutual hatreds. Beria and Malenkov loathed Zhdanov and Vozhnensky. Mikoyan hated Beria, Bulganin hated Malenkov. Given this atmosphere, the only positive outcome would be the death of Stalin, which, as we know, happened in March of 1953. At first, 
Bulgun was appointed to the position of Minister of Defense due to his alliance with Khrushchev. In February of 1955, he again sided with Nikita to oust his nemesis, Georgi Malenkov, and take his position as Premier of the Soviet Union. Over the next couple of years, Khrushchev and Bulganin traveled to Yugoslavia, India, and Great Britain, where they were known as the B&K Show. In 1956, during the Suez Canal Crisis, in which Israel, along with Great Britain and France, invaded Egypt, Russia, backing Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser, played a dangerous chess game against the West. Bulganin sent a threatening letter to the UK, France, and Israel, claiming if they didn't retreat, the USSR would launch rocket attacks on London, Paris, and Tel Aviv. This was a major bluff, meant to divide the Allies and the US, but it actually had the opposite effect. It strengthened NATO's resolve to protect all of its members in case of a Soviet attack. This bluff weakened the Soviet Union considerably in the eyes of the world. By this time, Bulganin was becoming weary of Khrushchev's reforms and harebrained ideas, so when the anti-party group tried to oust Nikita, he became an outsider. The idea was to replace Khrushchev as first secretary with Bulganin. The vote in the 11-man presidium was seven votes to four, in which Malenkov, Molotov, Kaganovich, Bulganin, Voroshilov, Porovkin, and Sabarov supported the ouster and Khrushchev, Mikoyan, Suzlov, and Kirichinko against. Marshal Zukov came to the aid of Khrushchev, who argued that only the Central Committee could remove him from office. When the vote came about, Zhukov mobilized the military to fly in all of Khrushchev's allies to Moscow, where they voted against removal. The anti-party members all lost their power, with Bulganin being forced to step down in March of 1958. By 1960, he retired with a pension, and Bulganin would live on until 1975, when he passed away at the age of 79. The next one we will talk about today was known as Iron Lazar, Lazar Moiseyevich Kaganovich. Born in 1894 to Jewish parents in the town of Kabani, now known as Dubrova, in Ukraine, he was to be the longest-living old Bolshevik associate of Joseph Stalin, dying in 1991, just six months before the death of the USSR, the nation he helped to form. Kaganovich joined the Bolsheviks in 1911, six years after his older brother Mikhail. He was the Minister of Propaganda for the Red Army during the early years after the Revolution. But was it was his appointment as the head of the Ogburo, of the Secretariat when Stalin became General Secretary of the Communist Party that he made his mark. Stalin was always credited with putting his men into key positions as he jockeyed for power against Trotsky, Bukharin, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Rykov. But it was Kurganovich who would do the work necessary. He was also the first person to publicly pledge undying support to Stalin, basically doing anything and everything his boss asked him of. Perhaps the most important thing Kaganovich did for Stalin was rigging the vote during the 1934 Congress of the Communist Party, in which he was the chair of the Counting Committee. The two main people running for the position of General Secretary were Joseph Stalin and Sergei Kirov. 
Gaganovich deleted 290 votes against Stalin, which brought his negative number to two, one less than Kirov. Now, it wasn't the positive vote that won you, it was how few negative votes you had. Before the fixed election, Kaganovich was involved in one of the great tragedies and genocides of the 20th century, the Holomodor famine. Millions of Ukrainians and other nationalities died of starvation because of the actions of Kaganovich and Stalin's henchmen like Postyashev and Kosior. Next up is his complicity in the Great Purge. Iron Lazar, as he was known, had ordered the arrests of thousands of railway administrators between 1935 to 37, accusing them of being wreckers or saboteurs. Many were executed or sent to the gulags. He did the same to the heavy and oil industries when he was named to the Narcom, or minister, from 37 to 40. Tens of thousands of people, if not more, were executed by his order. One of the victims of the purge was Lazar's own brother, Mikhail. He was a narcom of the aviation industry, where he was doing a pretty poor job. In 1941, Stalin told Lazar that his brother was, quote, associating with the right wing. He knew what that meant. After telephoning his brother, Mikhail committed suicide. Over the coming years, through the Great Patriotic War, Kaganovich showed his ruthlessness and ability to get things done. After Stalin's death, he remained a powerful man, but that would change with his attempt at a party coup against Khrushchev in 57 as a member of the anti-party group. After the failed coup, he was sent to Ural to become a director of a small potassium factory. By 1961, he was dismissed from the Communist Party altogether. As I said before, he would live on until his death in 1991, the last of the old Bolsheviks. The last person we'll cover today is Georgi Malenkov. Georgi Maximilianovich Malenkov was born on January 8, 1902, to a wealthy farming family in Orenburg, Russian Empire. His maternal grandfather was an Orthodox priest, something that will have an influence later on in his life. Coming from a well-to-do family was unusual, but not unheard of for a Bolshevik. What was odd that he would survive the Great Purge in the 1930s, whereas many others would not. By the age of 16, he was a volunteer for the Red Army in the Russian Civil War. When he was 18, he joined the Communist Party, serving as a political commissar in Turkestan. At the same time, he met his life partner, Valeria Golubutsova, which turned out to be very helpful to Malenkov, as her mother was a close confidant of one Vladimir Lenin. Valeria would be with him as he rose through the ranks and follow him to exile when he fell from grace. Malenkov's career in the Communist Party got a major boost in 1924 when Stalin noticed him and made him a member of the Org Bureau of the Central Committee of the Soviet Communist Party. He became in charge of keeping the records on the two million Communist Party members, which would make him very helpful to his boss, especially during the show trials and the purges. One of Malenkov's early jobs was to help take down the head of the NKVD, Nikolai Yezhov, in 1938 with the help of Lavranti Beria. By February 1941, 
he was to become a candidate member of the Politburo. Later that year, when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, Malenkov was promoted to the State Defense Committee. This was a really big boost in his career, as the only other members were Beria, Voroshilov, Molotov, and of course, Joseph Stalin. Malenkov's job during the war was to supervise military aircraft production and supervise the development of nuclear weapons. He, along with Lavrenti Beria, would continue the nuclear weapons program after the war. Malenkov's first deputy would become the Minister of Defense of the Soviet Union from 1976 until his death in 1984, when Dmitry Ustinov. After the Great Patriotic War, Malenkov helped Stalin take down the war hero, Marshal Georgi Zhukov. A few years later, Malenkov helped launch the attack on the leadership of Leningrad, where hundreds were executed and thousands sent to the gulags. By 1952, Georgi Malenkov was considered one of the likely successors of Stalin, which came about after his death in 1953. In September of that year, he became first secretary of the CPSU. He shared power with Nikita Khrushchev until the beginning of his downfall in 1955. In 57, as I've mentioned before, he became part of the anti-party group, along with Molotov, Kaganovich, and Voroshilov, trying to oust Khrushchev. When that failed, he was removed from the Politburo. By 1961, Malenkov was sent to Kazakhstan to manage a hydroelectric plant. When he died in 1988, he had turned back to religion, where he was a reader in the Russian Orthodox Church. Before we go, I want to share with you some notes from the chapter End of the Road from a new book uh, called On Stalin's Team, The Years of Living Dangerously in Soviet Politics by Sheila Fitzpatrick. It recounts the funerals and the end of days of some of the henchmen of Stalin and Khrushchev, well, she, although, i got to say, she's a lot kinder to them in her descriptions than I have been. I'll share the end of all the members of the team, as she puts it, including those I'll cover next podcast. First, we have Nikita Khrushchev dying in September 1971. There was no state funeral or burial in the Kremlin War, well, as he was on the outs with the communist regime of Brezhnev. There was only a private funeral with some friends and family. What was unusual was the presence of members of the liberal intelligentsia, people Khrushchev had ridiculed during his reign. Next was Anastas Mikoyan in 1978, where he died at the age of 82. He was buried at the Novodevichy Cemetery, not too far from Khrushchev and Stalin's wife, Nadia. At his funeral, members of the Soviet Politburo attended as he was the only member of the group that had not totally fallen out of favor at any time. His career, which, i got to say, is remarkable in and of itself. Georgi Malenkov, one of the youngest, died in 1988 at 86. He had returned to Moscow as a pensioner 20 years earlier, but no one in the Soviet press made any mention of his passing. Vyacheslav Molotov lived the longest life of any of Stalin's henchmen when he died in 1986, at the ripe old age of 96. He was one of the only ones to receive his Communist Party card back after being pushed out of power when Konstantin Chernenko returned it to him personally in 1984. Fitzpatrick noted that Molotov, despite being one of the most important men in the Soviet Union for over 30 years, 
did not receive a state funeral, but his passing was front-page news in the government newspaper Izvestia. The last one to die was Lazar Kaganovich. His final years were filled with bitterness and anger, as well as suffering from dementia. While Molotov was readmitted to the Communist Party, Kaganovich would have no such luck. He was despised by many as the man who was at the forefront of the Great Purge, hated most of all by those who were rehabilitated under Khrushchev's destalinization program of the 1950s. The other reason was the anti-Semitic atmosphere in the USSR. Kaganovich also was to die just six months before the end of the country. He, Stalin, and the henchmen terrorized, saved, built, and eventually destroyed. At his funeral, there were hundreds of people, but most of them were mostly journalists and sensation seekers. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Next time, we will continue with our coverage of Stalin and Khrushchev's henchmen and allies with the tales of Anastas Mikoyan, Vyacheslav Molotov, Mikhail Suzlov, Clement Voroshilov, and Andrei Zhidanov. So now, as always, Tasvidanya is Pasiba Bolshoya.